I am a child of God. Amen? Man, turn to John 7. John 7. It's probably, most of you probably heard of Barna. They do a lot of surveys, specifically some for Christians. And there was a survey done about three years ago, and the title was, What Do Americans Believe About Jesus? Five Popular Beliefs. And this was the conclusion. Number one, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person, which is true. I would agree with that. Younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. I found that one to be interesting. Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. Most Americans, number four, say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And then number five, people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. I, found it, I just found it uh, fascinating to think about this survey that was done not too long ago, about three years ago. And, you know, surveys are, can be tricky. Depends on who they surveyed. But I would say it's a fair representation of what I've come across and what you can see if you just pay attention to what's modern-day uh, bookstores or even what's on the news or if you listen to sermons or pay attention to what is popular in evangelicalism. But what we are facing in John 6 and 7 is, very, is a very different Jesus than what we see and what the culture sees today of who Jesus is. The Jesus of the American culture, to kind of summarize, is a friendly and kind man who wants to help you be happy. In, in short, bring love into the world, cause world peace, remove crime and racism, promote social justice. That's the Jesus we hear and promoted and preached. And in, in a sense, this is true about what Jesus is doing, in that he will remove all sin and restore it back to its original intention, which is back to the Garden of Eden, perfection. But that's not the Jesus that we read about in John 6 and in John 7. You kind of scratch your head and think, who changed the Bible? I mean, if this is the popular understanding of Jesus... Who put these crazy stories in here? Where did these come from? We've even had conversations about this in men's Bible study. As we read through the Bible, we start scratching our head going, okay, if I'm reading this for what it actually says, this is not the stories I've heard. This is not the Jesus I know. This Jesus in John 6 and John 7 or in the book of John is on a mission. I mean, he states it constantly. But the mission is not lining up with the American Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible is fulfilling prophecy about his deity. He's actually doing a work and is not simply an example for us to follow. Jesus' example for us to follow, normal understanding of Christianity, Jesus on mission, actually saving people, not attempting to be an example, the Jesus of John and of the Gospels. So he isn't going around trying to create a following. Instead, exposing, as we'll see here in John, the light of God and making people angry with him. Angry. Or as, John, or as Jesus' words, he uses the word, hate him. You know, the first six chapters of John, the more Jesus openly speaks of his Father, the more angry people become with him. The more he expresses his identity as the Messiah 
the more hatred comes out. He eventually tells them they don't believe. We saw this in John 6 a couple weeks ago. They don't believe because they can't, which makes them even more angry. For almost Jesus' entire ministry, for the three years that he had a public ministry, people wanted to hurt him. Or as the Gospels say, they wanted to kill him. And why? Why did they have such animosity towards Jesus? Because was he fighting the government? Was it the government that was coming after him? Or was he fighting, was he just by nature a contrarian and just wanted to stir up problems? No, that's not why they wanted to kill him. It was because, according to John and according to Jesus, they wanted to kill him because they hated him. The world saw Jesus and responded in hate. So much hate, they wanted to remove his presence. And Jesus tells us why in John 7. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you because it hates me. Because I testify about it, about it that its works are evil. So he states. Hey guys, can you turn me down just a hair? He states that the reason they hate me is that I am exposing evil in them. If you're in John, turn back real quick to chapter 3. Right before, right after the famous 316. He mentioned something that's very similar to verse 7 of chapter 7. Uh, chapter, uh, John 319. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now we hear that and we think to ourselves, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, evil people, murderers. Do you know who he's talking to? Do you know who he's speaking of? He's not talking about That kind of sin. He's actually speaking of their good works. In this context and in John 7, he's talking to morally good people. John 3 is a conversation with who? Nicodemus. A man who was upright and well-known within the religious culture. He is saying to them, your works are evil. So when you tell a good person, a good moral person, that God thinks what they are doing is evil? That it's not the God that they want to hear about and they get angry. Which makes sense. Pride prevents us from seeing a true state of wretchedness. So Jesus comes as the light, exposes them for who they truly are, and they hate him in response. Now I hear people... Uh, and I've read people worried about the state of the church. Young people leaving. And how they're leaving in droves. It's a, it's a problem. People questioning their faith. Now I don't deny it. I think it actually is happening. And I don't actually blame these young people who are leaving. The Jesus being fed to them is weak and powerless. And they see it. It's just a pure marketing scheme. That doesn't work. This Jesus they hear about brings law that no one can bear. They see it. They understand it. They don't want it. So they're not walking away from Jesus. All these droves of people that are leaving the church aren't walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from the American version of Jesus. 
which I would walk away from him as well. We are told to find our hope and our assurance in our performance. Depending on the church, that can look and sound different. But your assurance is found in pursuing the example of Jesus, not in seeing Jesus as Savior. So for some, it sounds, it's, it's how you dress and how you talk and what you listen to and where you go. Or for others... Jesus is all about social justice and fighting racism and abortion and trafficking. If you don't have that intensity and that's not your focus, then you're missing the point of Jesus. And others, it's spiritual disciplines or personal holiness, which is an interesting phrase. You know, the the Bible never uses the concept of personal holiness. A lot of holiness, and you should have it, but it's never personal. Because you can't have personal holiness. It's a holiness that comes from Christ. So they hear this, they realize it doesn't match, it doesn't work, and that's what they're abandoning, and rightfully so. Unfortunately, the downside is that they're abandoning everything. Instead of turning to the real Jesus of the Bible, they're turning away altogether, which means we have even more work ahead of us to make sure that we have the opportunity to share people who've been turned away from Jesus The real Jesus of the Bible, as we are told by John, is rejected by the world. The real Jesus. So you kind of have a double rejection here. Which is, this is why it's hard to read. I mean, if you're in John 3, go go even farther back to John 1. John 1 verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And what what John means by that is, know him for who he was, or is, which is the Messiah. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Jews. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can't stop there. You have to read verse 13 because he clarifies what he means by that. Who were born not of blood of the Jewish line, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men or man, how were they born? God. That's right. So who is it that believed? Those who had free will? Those who decided to make Jesus Lord? Those who saw his miracles and made the connection? Yes, okay, this this makes... Perfect logical sense. I now decide to place my faith on Jesus. No. Absolutely not. John is saying, Jesus shows the light, exposes men's hearts for what they are. They hate him and those who believe, believed according to the will of God. Yeah, that's that's a hard message to hear. There was no evidence that caused faith in their hearts is what John's saying. There's, you can't point to something into the individual who was exposed to Jesus and say, yes, right there, that's, that's why you believe. So John 1, John 3, John 6 have pointed us to the fact that God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves. You can't come to any other conclusion. Yes, I know that message will turn people off, and it does. Americans don't like to be told they are not free. Never. That they have limits. 
they will launch an attack on anything that will remove their freedom. But unfortunately, which is not a bad thing, but unfortunately, it plays into their understanding of the relationship with God. They have launched, in essence, an attack on the gospel. They have removed the power of the gospel and placed it within the wisdom of men. Logic. The New Testament writers warn Christians about how the world will see the gospel, the true gospel, the unadulterated gospel, the gospel being presented to us here in John. The world sees the true gospel as dangerous and ridiculous. You don't have to turn, let me just read this to you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly, stupid, ridiculous. To you explain to people, you are only saved by Christ's death and work on the cross and through the will of God and power. And they say, that's stupid. That's what they say. But then he says, but to us who are being saved, it's why we worship. It is the power of God. So, uh, later on in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, meaning the person born without the Spirit, the natural man is how the New Testament describes it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He doesn't say you need to work harder to convince them. He says it's impossible. They're not able to do it. Romans 1.16, Paul again, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now you know why he has to say that. Because it is a message that is so offensive, people think it's so ridiculous and so crazy, Paul says, I, I'm not ashamed of it. And this is why. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you know there's nothing else said to consume the power of God? No other message than the gospel. Not even the law consumes the power of God. It's the gospel. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith, not by obedience. So to read John from an American perspective, you will find it confusing and with little to no application. Which, I don't know why I do this to myself, but I like to go hear sermons about John 7. And some of them I got about three minutes in, I'm like, I already know the application they're going to make. So I'm going to just push pause. When we read John 7 from the eyes of this beloved apostle, your heart, which is his intention, is drawn into the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the application. Jesus becomes our assurance for the goodness of God, not because of our obedience. God is good with us not because we obey or because we're more good than we are bad made a decision to follow him, or for any other reason we can conjure up in our mind. That is John 6 and John 7. That's what you feel. That's the craziness of his message. God accepts us, loves us, protects us, keeps us, cleanses us, sanctifies us, glorifies us, calls us his child, prepares a home for us, because Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. That's the conclusion of John 6 and 7. That's why we can be assured of his goodness. So once again, let's be reminded how powerful the gospel message is and how powerless we should see ourselves as we read John's story in John 7. Look at verse 1. 
After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go up to Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, the Jewish feast of booze was at hand. Now, do you remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, you got to pay attention because what does John do? He's, it's almost like a Sherlock story. You got to pay attention to the little details because at the end, John goes, did you see it? The key was under the mat. <laughs> it's like, he just, he, so this is this, what he's doing. He's dropping it in again. So in John 6, what did, what did John drop in at the beginning of the passage? What was the event? The Passover. And what is the Passover all about? The Exodus. It's celebrating the Passover of the death angel on God's people. And it's a picture of his redemption of his people. So he sets that up. It's about the time of the Passover. And then for the rest of the narrative, it's John pulling back little pictures about Jesus walking on the water and it's connected to the Dead Sea and the feeding of the 5,000 and manna in heaven. I mean, it's crazy, all the connections John does. Well, he's going to do it in John chapter 7. And this one, I don't even get to get to this week. I'm so disappointed, but we will. And it's so good. But there is a little detail about this we do need to know for this week. John is setting the scene once again for this encounter and he's pointing it to the, Paso- or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the reason he's pointing it to the Feast of the Tabernacles is it's in Judea and it's a big gathering. Massive people. So three times a year, all of these Jewish people come together to celebrate. And that's what John wants us to know. But specifically, the celebration of the 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 uh, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, j- just for the sake of history, we're not going to spend a lot of time in here, is that it's celebrating that time of, them, of Israel in the desert right before they go into the Promised Land. And what they are called to do is to go outside of their homes and build these little tents or stick houses and live in it for seven days. And then they are to take this, so this is done in the fall, so it's near September, October, it's near harvest. So they're to take it, and it's this massive feast. And it's a reminding, it's a, it's a feast to remind them every year of how God ushered them into the promised land. So they re-experience that moment right where they're on the border and they're right to go into the promised land. So that narrative is important because later on John starts, remember there's a, while they're out in the desert, there's two times Moses strikes the rock, water comes out of the rock because they had, so they were provided for. That's what John's setting us up for. Oh, I want to get into it today, but we can't next week. Now, why this is important is because they're focusing on the amount of people, and this is going to play out in John's narrative with his brothers. Now, this um, he does say after this, we would think that after the mass of people that left Jesus, right? John 6, Jesus basically tells them, you don't believe that I am the Messiah because the Father hasn't granted it to you. They all get upset and leave. We actually don't know. John isn't writing it in like a sequential timeline. He's just picking really important parts of Jesus' life. So the guess is it's probably because we know when the Passover is and we know when the Feast of Tabernacles is. So it's about probably six months later. And then we pick up this interaction Jesus has with his brothers, which you don't really read a lot about his interaction as a family. So this is, you got a couple of times with his mom and now with his brothers. So in verse three, it says, 
So his brothers, sorry, John chapter 7, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now throughout John's gospel, there is a theme of people calling Jesus to reveal himself to the world. This, was, this, this part was fun, spending time studying this. Even in this passage, John is using the world, the word world, to trigger in the mind of the reader this theme. Uh, here's a good example of it. You don't need to turn there. First John, or John 1 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not what? Know him. What, is his, what does his brother say? Go make yourself known. To the world. So John's telling us straight up in the beginning. The world isn't going to know who he is. Know him as Messiah. Then in John 14, 22, he's talking to Judas, not Iscariot. It says to him, Lord, this is Judas talking to Jesus. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So the disciples are picking up on it. Why is it that you are kind of being secretive of who you are? How many times in the New Testament does Jesus heal somebody? And what does he say? Now, don't go tell anybody. And what do they do? Guess what? Jesus healed me. (laughs) It's like they print off flyers and go tell everyone. Almost every time Jesus says, now don't tell anybody, the exact opposite happens. And so the disciples are picking up on it. Why are you trying to be so secretive? Don't we want to get this thing going and roaring and bring in the kingdom? Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came... And said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the Pharisees. Why are you trying to purposely confuse them? What did they say at the end of John 6? Uh, This is a hard saying. Who can believe this? This is crazy. Look at verse 11, Matthew 13, 11. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. So Jesus is saying, look, I am not coming to reveal the message of Christ to absolute everyone. Just to those who it's been given. That does not sound like the Jesus of America. But it's definitely the Jesus of the Bible. Now, does Jesus one day reveal himself to everyone? Yes, let me read you this quote from an author. The reader who presses on to the rest of this gospel discovers that in Jerusalem where Jesus reveals himself most dramatically, not in the spectacular miracles the brothers want, but in the, but in the form of the cross, the very cross by which Jesus draws all men to himself and becomes the savior of the world. So back in the story of John, his brothers are not concerned with Jesus getting the message of the Messiah out. They are not giving him advice so others might believe in him as Savior. That's definitely not what they're saying. And we know this because John tells us, get verse 5, John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. When it means believed in him as the Son of God, Messiah. Jesus' brothers fit into the same camp as those in John 5. Remember John 5? They see the miracles. They come to him, the feeding of the 5,000. This mass of people comes to him. What does he do? He sends them away. Because they are not pursuing him as Messiah, but as provider. 
it's almost certain Jesus' brothers would have known about this mass departure that took place in John 6. So think about it. Feeding 20,000 people, thousands of people end up following him over across the sea and, Lord, you have bread, give us more bread. He denies them, confuses them. John 6, they all leave. So now Jesus is back down to from 20,000 to twelve. Pretty obvious when you're being followed by cities and now being followed by a small group of smelly men, right? So this brother is probably going, man, you, aren't, you haven't figured out this like Messiah thing yet. You haven't figured out how to take over the world here. Let me give you some advice. This is what they're doing. If you want, this is why they say you can't keep the message, you can't keep your miracles secretive if you want everybody to know who you are and follow you. So logically, Jesus, go to Judea and start you know, getting people to follow you again. And what does he say to them? Look at verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is here already. Now what Jesus is responding to them is this. What I have to actually say is offensive. And it's why people want to kill me. And so... My time of death is not yet here. Now, John uses time here in two different ways. There are basically three different ways, three different Greek words that you can use for time. And John specifically uses one here where when Jesus says, my hour has not come, ora, in Greek, he doesn't use this here. Uh, There's another one from Kronos. He doesn't use that either. But so the, the one he specifically used here, it is related to time. And he is speaking of going up to the festival. Saying, look, my time isn't here. But it's a double entendre, it's a, a double play here. Because he is talking about, I don't want to go now, because it's not my time to go, because I am obeying the will of the Father. So I don't want to go and die. But it's also not my time or my hour. So there's, there's, two, there's two parts going on. The reason I mention that is that it can, it can seem confusing, because if you're not following the narrative, you think Jesus lies to his brothers. <laughs> Oh, it's not my time, I'm not going to go. You guys go without me. And then they leave and then he goes. And you're like, Jesus just lied. (laughs) No, he didn't. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Man, it seems cryptic. What he's saying is, you guys can go anytime that you want. Because they're not upset at you. They're not waiting for you to show up so they can kill you. They don't hate you because... You are actually a part of the world. Notice his brothers are not believers. So what does Jesus associate them with? The world. So you have two categories of people. Those who believe in Jesus and everyone else is the world. And Jesus points out that the world hates him. Wow. Not one time, multiple times this language is used by Jesus about people who don't believe in him. It's interesting. James even picks up on this. Later, his brother James saying, basically, if you were a friend of the world, you hate God. Which we would never look at someone who is nice and moral and kind. and They're not a believer. They don't believe in Jesus. You would never say, oh, you hate God. But that is the conclusion that we're being drawn to. And why is that? That is, that is, that is crazy to think that this is what the Bible is teaching. He did not say the Jews, specifically. He could have, and does mention them. 
his previous followers, he says that those who don't believe in him are the ones who hate him. So the real Jesus, not the one people conjure up in their mind, the real Jesus that exposes darkness, the one who is light, that Jesus the world hates is what Jesus is saying. We'll read to you from John 15. So later on, Jesus once again is going to deal with this issue. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it was that has hated me before it hated you. So these are believers, the followers of Christ that are feeling some persecution here, or seeing it. If you were the if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. What does this say to his brothers? You're fine in the world. I'm not. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then he prays for his disciples later on in John chapter 17. I have given them your word, speaking to the Father, Jesus to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then listen how the Apostle Paul takes this concept from Jesus and uses it to encourage the church in Philippi. So Philippians chapter 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I am I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, Again, this language, this gift comes from God. But what does he say? In him, but also to suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That is a very different message from the message we hear now. A lot of the Jesus you hear today is soft and weak and meek and easy, and falls on the ears with no fear of sin being exposed in your life. To holding the gospel message, holding to Jesus, will bring you into direct opposition to the world. Now remember, I am not talking about morality and conduct. Opposition of, well, you know, we don't watch rated R movies, and now we're in opposition to the world. That is not what he's talking about. He is talking about where someone sees that they are righteous or just in the eyes of God. We say it's through Christ, through faith alone, period. They say a myriad of other opportunities. So if you think you can share the gospel and not offend someone, According to the Bible, you're not sharing the gospel. Now, I think Christians are offensive and stupid for being offensive. And you should let the gospel offend and not your stupidness. (laughs) 
I've met many Christians who think the gospel is offending, and I'm like, hey, time out. Ed, you haven't even started the gospel yet, and these people are offended. Let the gospel do that. You don't need to do that. Because, and the reason I say that is, we immediately go in and try to moralize people. We try to change them. You need to become better, and you need to stop doing this, and you need to stop sleeping with that person, smoking that, and doing that, and that, and that, and that. And what they hear the gospel message to be is, you be better. Instantly, they feel judged. Why? They should feel judged. You are judging them. Only Jesus transforms lives. So we go in, purely being exposed to the light of Christ, understanding we have no hope without Jesus, and that's the message we are bringing not trying to transform someone's life, but allowing the Spirit to do His work. You know, the more I read John 6 and 7, I find myself saying, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. The gospel is that weird and radical. No human being would ever use this method and message to save people. It's crazy. You know, the more I preach the gospel, the more opposition I have found the more clarity I find in the gospel, the more purity I preach Christ alone and faith alone, the more I emphasize Christ and remove the works of righteousness, I'm criticized and I feel it. No one wants to hear that they have zero involvement in their morality. It it bothers us. You know what's interesting is that Jesus, when faced with really holy people in the eyes of the culture, righteous people, they get angry and they run away from him seeking to kill him. And those who see themselves as pure, evil, and wretched fall on him drooling and crying because they understand, I have nothing to offer Jesus. We're going to get into these stories here in John. So the people who find themselves in need love the message of Christ and those who find themselves as righteous hate the message of Christ. Now let's finish the story. John 7, 8. You go up to the feast, he's talking to his brothers. I'm not going up to this feast. Uh, in some translations... It does say yet. I think it's helpful to put that there. I do think that the Greek text lends itself to that. I'm not going up to the feast yet. For my time has not yet fully come. Makes sense with the following statement, right? Again, he is talking about the time of the appointed will of God. And the time that he needs to go to the feast. Because all of his movements are sovereignly planned by God. After saying this, he remained in Galilee... But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly. So he didn't want to go in this massive entourage. You have to understand, people, you know, they, they had to, the whole family would go. So it would be a big, and everybody would know who Jesus' family is. Because we know this, because they were looking for him specifically. The Jews, verse 11, were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet the fear of the Jews, no one, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
What, he, what they mean by he is leading people astray is that Jesus is leading people away from the laws that we have set up. We rabbis who have passed along from rabbi to rabbi, our laws, he's turning people away from them. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? We're going to learn about this in John 9. We've already learned about it John on John 4, right? Healing the guy by the pool of Bethesda. I do want to just mention real quick for us, and I think it's going to be helpful, as we move through John, when he talks about that my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, this is what he means by this, is that from the moment of his birth, prophesied by the Old Testament, there was an appointed time that Jesus would die. This is why when they wanted to rush him in and be Messiah now and fix the reign and remove the Roman rule, said, no, you don't understand while I'm here. This kingdom is not my kingdom. That is not why I have come. Acts 2.23, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, standing up in the sermon saying, Jesus' death was planned. It was appointed by God. Luke 2.22.22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been Determined, speaking about his death, Acts three eighteen. But God, but what God foretold by the mouth of the, all the prophets, that his Christ, his Messiah, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So it was prophesied that there was an appointed Messiah that would die at an appointed time for the redemption of people. And then Peter finally says in Acts four twenty seven, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, God anointed these men to take these actions, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then Peter alludes to this as well when he says, He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. The point of it is, When Jesus says, my time, my hour has not yet come, and he uses it constantly, we should understand that he understands his death is coming. This is why his prayer in the garden is so powerful, which we will talk about, we will go through later. So we should read John 7 and and, and sit back and go, I can't believe, this is what, you know, I don't do a lot of applications, so here's your, if you have notes, here's your application. I can't believe Jesus makes sense to me. I mean, that is, you have Jesus' brothers who lived with him. They knew he never sinned. Saw him do miracles. And not only his his brothers didn't believe. Now, later on, they did. After his resurrection, some of them did. Some of them did believe. Of course, we know this because James, this is a writer, James' brother, Jesus, But you read this and you have to conclude, if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, He did what He said He did, and He still lives forever at the right hand of God, if I am actually able to believe that and I am trusting in only that, the only reason I can do that is God willed it. It's God willed it. I mean, what other application would you want to ever conjure up? It allows you to say, I am safe in the arms of Christ, because God willed it 
Not because I perform, not because I've done well, and not because I will do well. There's a doctrine sneaking back in, and it's dangerous, and it's called final justification. And what that means is, at the end, God will look at your good works and determine whether you are truly a believer or not. You will, then you'll be finally justified. What in the world? John 7 screams at that concept. No one believes in Jesus unless it's willed by the Father. You mean to tell me the Father's going to question his will at the end of your life? Well, you know, I think I decided to save you, but I can't remember. Let's look at your life and decide. That's crazy. It's crazy. Now, do our works matter? Sure. Not in the way that we're taught. If you want to know why they matter and you weren't here last week, go listen to last week's sermon. Boom. (laughs) Men, let's get ready for communion. If you do struggle, looking at your own life and your own sin, and there is a struggle with sin, first of all, take heart. Because the struggle is real. And the reason the struggle is real is because the Spirit lives within you. If you don't struggle with sin, my friend, you should be worried. We are saint and sinner. Simultaneously at the same time, which means the Spirit dwells within us, empowers us to see our need for Christ, And struggle with sin. So if you don't struggle with sin, you may not truly be... Then I don't mean that... Well, you all know what I mean. I don't need to explain that. But if you feel as if... No, I, I have to be performing to this level. I have to be doing this at this certain time. And if I'm not doing this in this way, I'm sorry. The Bible does not give us a clear guideline in which the way in which we find our hope in that way. John wrote his gospel so that you would see Jesus and that you would believe in Jesus and in nothing else. Period. So when we do communion today, once again, we do it to remind ourselves not of what we must do before or after communion, but we remind ourselves of what he has done. If you're not certain of this, I'd encourage you, don't take communion. Don't confuse yourself. It does not make you acceptable in the eyes of God. It only confuses the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we're about to do what you've commanded through Christ, this ordinance of the table, I pray that our faith is increased, that we rest all of our assurance We assure ourselves that you love us, that you care for us, you provide for us, you sanctify us, you save us purely because of Jesus. I pray that we can rest our assurance in the work of Christ and not in our works. In Jesus' name, amen.